Hello friends, my name is Chris Holmes. I am the scholar in residence at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, and it is a joy and a pleasure and a privilege to be teaching uh, this Candler Foundry course with you all on uh, 1 Peter, one of the shorter books in the New Testament, but certainly one of the, the richest and one that offers us, I think, plenty of information to wrestle with uh, over the next several weeks. So I want to do a couple of things in this very first uh, lecture uh, together with you. Uh, the first is I want to make sure uh, that we have uh, a reminder of some of the basic uh, orienting material as it relates to 1 Peter as a whole. Uh, and I imagine doing that in uh, just about uh, 7 or 10 minutes, depending on how wordy I get. And then I want to spend, uh, you know, an equivalent amount of time, maybe 10 to 12 minutes, focusing on um, our focus passage for this week, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Who wrote 1 Peter, right? That's a, a big question. In 1 1, the, the writing is attributed to Peter. And we, church tradition tells us that this is. Peter, the, the sort of central disciple in the gospel stories. Peter, who makes this bold declaration about Jesus' identity, but also Peter, who denies Christ three times in the final hours of Jesus' life. A complex and important character in the history of early Christianity. Of course, as the years have gone on, uh, the, the question of who wrote First Peter has become a little bit more complicated. One of the reasons is actually a reason that we find in 1 Peter itself, and that is in 1 Peter 5.12, near the end of the writing, um, we are, are led to believe, we are led to understand that 1 Peter was actually written through Silvanus. Um, uh, this gives us the impression that Silvanus uh, was the scribe or was the secretary who wrote down 1 Peter, presumably at the dictation or the influence of, uh, of Peter. Now, we know of Silvanus from other writings in the New Testament. We know him as a delegate of the church in Acts 15, as well as a co-worker of Paul, according to Acts 15.40. And interestingly, super interestingly for us, uh, Silvanus is also a co-worker of Paul, a co-author, rather, of Paul in his letters to the Christians in Thessalonica. So Silvanus is this interesting character who uh, seems to offer this mediating position between Peter and Paul. Remember, if, if, you've, if you've ever read Galatians, if you've ever read uh, Acts, you know that there were some issues between uh, Paul and Peter. Um, there, were, there were some questions about, um, uh, about their, they had a rival mission, according to Galatians. Paul was entrusted with the mission to the Gentiles, and Peter and James were entrusted to the mission to the non-Gentiles, to the Jews. For, for this reason, the, the convention of Silvanus being the, the author, uh, the similarities with both Paul and James, as well as uh, some questions about, the, uh, about when 1 Peter was written, um, has led contemporary New Testament scholars 
to doubt uh, that it was actually written by Peter. Um, there's a clue insofar as 1 Peter refers to Babylon as a sort of uh, a code word for the Roman Empire and for the city of Rome. And we don't see this practice happening in early Christian circles until after the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. And so many people, not all, but many New Testament scholars would date the first Peter to sometime after the destruction of the temple in 70 and sometime before 90 CE. And the problem is that we also know from church tradition is that Peter was killed uh, in the middle of the 60s uh, or in the late 60s. And so how can Peter write it if it's not written until after? So in addition to these chronological problems that we see uh, with 1 Peter, there's also a question about the, the level of Greek. Uh, it's, it's a sophisticated Greek. It's, it's actually quite beautiful in places. Um, and people have wondered, does a Galilean fisherman really know and, and write Greek that well? That is somewhat mediated. That question is somewhat addressed if we take seriously the fact that Silvanus was the secretary or the scribe for 1 Peter. Um, the second problem is, is really about, you know, Peter and Paul and the Gentile problem. It seems, according to both Acts and Galatians, that, that there was this separate mission. And Peter seems to be violating that mission with 1 Peter. Peter, uh, 1 Peter, as I'll say in a few moments, is certainly written for a Gentile audience, a non-Jewish audience. And so how does that square with Peter is sort of only supposed to minister to the, uh, to the, the non-Gentiles, to the Jews, and Paul is meant to med uh, minister to uh, the Gentiles? For a number of reasons, um, there, there is a doubt in contemporary scholarship about the authorship. What I tell all of my students when I teach either here at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta or when I teach at Columbia Seminary or Emory University um, I, I tell them that, you know, we don't need to get bound up on the questions of authorship um, because ultimately uh, what matters is, is that God's spirit continues to speak and breathe and work through these writings, uh, whether or not it was Peter who put his pen uh, to papyrus or whether it was Silvanus or whether it was someone else. Um, these words have been received by the church as, as Holy Scripture. And so it's good for us to sit with some of these questions about authorship and, and understand some of the complexities. But th those, those deeper questions, those critical questions, shouldn't take away anything from our engagement with First Peter. The next thing I want to say by way of introductory orientation material for First Peter concerns the audience. Uh, so the audience, as uh, we hear in 1.1, is identified as the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all in what we would refer to as Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey today. Um, there are indicators elsewhere in the letter that the, the audience members are uh, are Gentiles, that they are ethnically and racially and religiously non-Jewish. Um, uh, we, we see this clearly in 2.10. Um, we see uh, the description of their former life um, or their non-participation in larger pagan or Gentile culture in 4.3, also in 1.18. And so these are details that make us, that, that suggest uh, rather that these recipients of 1 Peter, the first readers or more likely hearers of 1 Peter, 
were were non-Jews. They were Gentiles. We also learn that this audience is experiencing a good bit of persecution or a conflict with that wider surrounding culture. Uh, We learn in 4.16 that they are experiencing persecution or potential persecution uh, as a a result of being Christian, um, as a result of their, uh, probably I would say, their non-participation in the larger cultural and religious world of antiquity. Now remember, in the ancient world, there wasn't a a clear division between religion and politics. And so non-participation in the religious realm could be interpreted as a threat to the political realm, as a threat to the state. And so for a number of reasons, the the Romans uh, in the first century viewed Christians with suspicion because it was in everybody's best interest to venerate as many gods as possible and certainly to venerate the the recent imperial cult, the, the, the religious cult to the emperor. And so when Christians refused to participate in that, uh, that that threatened to make the gods angry. And when gods get angry, they do things like make Mount Vesuvius erupt, or they make earthquakes happen, or they they make it so that the, the, the farms don't produce as much as they need to produce, or there's terrible natural disasters. And so this refusal to participate in both the religious and the cultural world of that milieu, of that larger first century world, uh, put a target on the backs of Christians. Um, and now this isn't a, a universal persecution. It's not like every Christian in the Roman Empire experienced persecution. These were largely sporadic. They were largely localized experiences of persecution. But First Peter indicates that this, this audience is experiencing this form of persecution, this form of hardship. And it's important to note that it's very social in nature. Again, it's about participation or non-participation and the sort of implications of that as well. So uh, as we think about 1 Peter, um, it's a a fairly short writing. It's it's pretty easy to provide an outline for it. Um, I see the greeting in 1, 1 through 2. Uh, I see in verses 1, 3 through 12, this opening passage. This is a really a, a, bl- a blessing and a statement about, the, about salvation. It's really sort of a formative paragraph in the whole letter. It, it sort of introduces key themes and ideas that will be developed elsewhere in the letter. And then in 1, 13 through 5, 11, this is where we have uh, the, the sort of the body of the letter itself. This is where, where 1 Peter does a lot of the hard, uh, important theological work. And then in 5, 12 through 14, we have the final remarks. The last thing that I want to say by way of orientation is uh, about the major themes that we find present in 1 Peter. The first theme that we find in 1 Peter is the idea of exile or sojourning. Now, it's, it's most likely that this is a, a metaphorical or a spiritual exile. It's an exile that comes about because of these Christians' commitment to the way of Jesus and their refusal to participate in other religious and cultural practices. Um, And so the author uh, reinterprets the experience of persecution, of social ostracism, of being left out, of being made fun of. All of these sorts of things 
are reinterpreted as exile. Now, exile is a hugely important theme in the Old Testament um, as we think about the book of Jeremiah and other writings that are, are dealing with how is it that God's chosen people can no longer live in the promised land? And how do you make sense of that life? How do you live that way? And so, 1 Peter is tapping into that theme and is reinterpreting the experience of Christian persecution, the experience of, of falling out with the larger surrounding world as a form of exile, as an alien existence. A second major theme in 1 Peter that we see in our opening passage, but we see it elsewhere as well, is the theme of new birth um, or, or baptism, new life. Um, and what's important here, there's two things. One, um, scholars, some scholars have suggested that 1 Peter is itself sort of a baptismal homily, a, a sermon that would have surrounded or gone around the, the ritual of baptism. I think that's probably a little overblown, but baptism is a major theme. The second thing that I would highlight about baptism is just how communal it is. So I think it's easy in our contemporary world to think about baptism as a very individualistic thing. But in 1 Peter, baptism is, in, is being baptized into a new people. It's being baptized into a new social reality, into a new community. Um, and so, yes, there are, there's a personal element to it, but there's also this vastly important uh, social collective dynamic as well. A third major theme uh, is its future orientation. 1 Peter is, is sort of oriented towards the future, towards the coming of Jesus, towards the coming of God's judgment. Um, there's an urgency, an anticipation, and an expectation uh, with regard to this theme, and it, we find it in nearly every chapter in 1 Peter. Finally, uh, the fourth theme that's worth holding up is the theme of suffering. Um, again, suffering is probably one of the most dominant themes in all of 1 Peter, helping people make sense of this experience of social ostracism, of being cut out from larger community groups, of experiencing possibly imprisonment or even physical violence as a result of their Christian commitment. And so a lot of what 1 Peter is doing is helping those recipients, those, those hearers, deal with and interpret and understand what is happening in their lives. What does suffering mean? And one of the key elements in this part of 1 Peter is how the narratives of Jesus, the stories about Jesus as one who also suffered, are interwoven with the experience of the community as they uh, experience suffering themselves. So I'm going to stop here, our first part of our lecture on an orientation to 1 Peter. I invite you to, to go ahead and uh, take a break, uh, think through any of the material that I've presented in this lecture, and uh, we'll come back with the, the, the lecture on 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 12. All right, friends, this is part two of our first lecture for our first week of our First Peter class on uh, with the Candler Foundry class. Um, in our first part of the lecture, we did a brief orientation and a reminder of some of the, the key data points in First Peter. And in this part of our lecture, part two of our week one lecture, I want to focus on our first passage from First Peter 
3 verses, uh, uh, 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 12. Now, um, as I said in the orientation video, um, this passage is, is really a, an introduction to the whole letter. Um, those that, that read 1 Peter in light of ancient rhetorical practices see this as the proenium, the, the introductory, the first word of, uh, of 1 Peter. And it's, in, in this role, it introduces major themes that introduces major ideas that are going to be developed later in 1 Peter. In the Greek, um, this is a, a single long sentence. Um, it is, uh, you know, punctuation is added later in the process uh, when it comes to uh, uh, additions of the New Testament in Greek. But even with that later additions of those, of those punctuations, it is this long, complicated, elegant, and beautiful uh, sentence. We can, I think, and, and other interpreters have done so, um, break this into three parts. And that's how I'm going to treat it in this video lecture. Um, that there are, uh, part one is verses three through five. Part two is verses six through nine. And then part three is verses 10 through 12. And th the importance of this uh, really is that it, th this breakdown really has a, 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 it correlates to the chronology of the church's life. So in verses 3 through 5, there is this future orientation. It's, it's looking forward to their final salvation, their final redemption. And then in verses 6 through 9, we have this focus that is much more present focused. It's much more the life, the, the circumstances that the audience is experiencing. And then verses 10 through 12 is actually more retrospective. It's looking back to the prophetic traditions, to the prophetic writings, to see how the present experience is actually rooted in God's eternal plans. Three parts to this passage. Part one, as I said, is verses three through five. And this is where we get this wonderful image of uh, divine re-begetting. Um, I know the NRSV translates this as uh, has given us new birth. Um, and, and that's fine. The, the Greek word here, anagenao, is something like re-begetting. And what's really important about this new life or this second birth or this rebirth is that it is a divine act that leads to a totally new life. This, this new life is not capable through human effort. It's not, it's not something you can strategize your way into. It's not something you can plan your way into. Rather, it is something that comes through the divine word spoken over a person in the act of baptism. And it's also important that this new um, birth or this new life um, leads to that experience of being an alien and an exile. It's because people have experienced this radical transformation in their life, this radical break from that which was, that they now experienced discord and social ostracism and problems and all of the other things uh, that we talked about in part one of this video lecture. 
The other thing to note about this begetting, this giving birth, this rebirth uh, in verses, uh, one, uh, verses 3 through 5, is that the consequences of that rebirth are indicated um, in Greek by one single Greek word, ace, which means into, and then three nouns, hope, inheritance, and salvation. So these are the three consequences of that new birth. So these are the things that the Christians are born into. And again, all of them have a future orientation. So hope really is the, the, the center of gravity in these first verses. Um, this is a, a hope that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, it is not mere optimism. It's not just a hoping for the best in a lighthearted way. This is a profoundly powerful and rooted understanding of hope that is based in God's character and God's action in the past that looks forward to the future that God is going to act in that same very way. The second word, inheritance, um, is never defined. We're not, we're not sure what an inheritance is, but there are probably two corollaries that are at work. The first is the promised land that is promised to the people of Israel, a physical space, probably a, 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 an earthly kingdom and an earthly realm. Um, that inheritance is, is probably the background of what the author says is this eternal and undefiled and unfading inheritance that the recipients of the letter have received because of their new birth. Uh, the first is the, the sort of the promise of, of land that God gave to Abraham and then to Abraham's children after him that has sort of been idealized and even somewhat spiritualized, and, but that's part of the background. The second part, I think, of the background is ancient adoption principles, right? That, that when you are adopted into a new family, all of a sudden you would have access to an inheritance that you might not otherwise have had an access to. And so I think both of these ideas of inheritance are present in our passage today. And this passage, um, again, this inheritance rather, is, is given these three really dynamic, interesting adjectives that, that apply to it. And two of those adjectives um, have something to do with sharing in the very nature of God. And then the other is, is saying that the inheritance is, is sort of independent of it. It's not subject to the, the erosion of time, like other human possessions. And so again, if we think about the theological and the rhetorical value of this, um, these are people that might have lost things as a result of their commitment to Jesus. And the author is saying that, you know, that's fine. Those things were going to pass away as they were. But what you have been born into, the, the, the consequence of this new birth, is this, this unfading, this perfect and glorious and imperishable inheritance. The final thing that the Christians are born into is salvation. It's a salvation, the author says, um, that is being guarded for them in heaven. It is being protected for them. It is being guaranteed for them. And even as that salvation is being guarded, they themselves are experiencing their own experience of being guarded by God's power. They're protected by God's power. Now, you might ask, 
what does this mean? Aren't they already saved, right? I mean, aren't they believers? And don't we know that believers are saved? Well, I think First Peter is here drawing on an Old Testament and an, a, a Jewish background in which salvation is both experienced in the now. There's this experience of new life and rebirth and all of these things. But ultimate salvation is put off into the future until the day when God finally sets the world aright. When God finally takes a world that is bent towards injustice and writes it. And, and, and the author seems to be tapping into this tradition. We see it in the book of Revelation. We see it in a number of uh, early Jewish texts as well. That it's, it's the ultimate rescue of Christians from all of their current oppression. But it's also an escape um, from God's, uh, God's judgment at the end of times. From God's, um, God's desire to set things right. Um, and their salvation is, their well-being will be protected in that moment. So, that's what we see in verses 3 through 5. If we look to verses 6 through 9, this is, as I said before, an, a sort of an insight into the present experience of the audience, of the first hearers of First Peter. And there are two really important uh, uh, elements in this. So as we shift from a focus on uh, the future orientation of God's um, merciful act, hope, inheritance, and salvation, the present realities that are dealt with are suffering and testing. And again, it is because it is because, it's the very reason that because they are a part of this new people, because they've experienced this re-begetting, that they experience suffering. That's, that's what they experience in a sort of lived experience way. And the author opens by saying that, in fact, um, they can and they should have joy in the midst of their suffering. They can have joy in the midst of their suffering because they know that those things promised to them, the, the, the hope and the inheritance and the salvation, those are sure. And they can hope in those. They can grab onto those things and be confident of those things. We see um, uh, this rejoicing um, is the appropriate response for these people experiencing real suffering because of the nature of these realities that were described in verses 3 through 5. The second thing that we see, so have joy in suffering, and then the second thing that we see is this idea that trials are a test, that, that trials are similar to the process of proving metals, fine metals like gold and silver, that you used fire to strengthen and to eliminate any of the of the weaknesses or the impurities of metal. And so this, this metaphor of, of difficulty and tests and, uh, and gold refining was popular in the ancient world, and certainly our author is driving uh, on this. And really, the, the point here is that if, if this is what we use to purify and prove the, the, the faithfulness or the, or, or the soundness of gold, how much more? How much more significant for our faith and for our, uh, our convictions about who God is and what God has promised us. Um, and so this idea that, that all of these trials can be greeted with joy because they are necessary to prove this imperishable faith that is so much better, so much more valuable than gold or silver. Um, 
That seems to be the, the general idea here. The third thing that we see in this part of 1 Peter that is important is this sense of awaiting the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a, a waiting for Jesus Christ to be revealed. Um, and there's this wonderful piece about, um, you know, you, you believe in Jesus even though you haven't seen him. And there's this discrepancy between um, what they can see and what they believe. There's this discrepancy between what they currently experience in their suffering and their anticipated future glory. There is this discrepancy between faith and sight. And so this, the present moment is, we might say, one of a contradictory experience. On the one hand, there is suffering, tangible, real suffering that is, is the present reality. And yet there is this invisible and imperishable hope that God is who God promises to be. And that God is going to rescue and protect and be with people even in the midst of their suffering and certainly on the back end of it. The final thing that we see in verses 6 through 9 that is, uh, is interesting um, is uh, this, this notion that they have salvation, which is, is described as the salvation of your souls. That's the outcome of their faith. And again, that's how the NRSV translated is, is the salvation of your souls. And I think one of the problems with that translation, if I'm just being honest, is it can make us think that there's a soul, right? Like maybe somewhere here, or maybe in my gut, or maybe my brain is my soul. But there's this idea that there's a soul that is different from my material body. And I don't think that that is at all what First Peter has in mind. Instead, I, I think First Peter has in mind a very Old Testament understanding of the soul, or the nephesh in Hebrew, um, which was not just one part of the person, but was the whole person. Body and, and soul and heart and mind, all of us are a nephesh, are a living thing, right? And so when we see the words soul in the NRSV, I think we, we automatically assume a sort of dualism between the soul and the body, between the immaterial and the material that I don't think is right. And so we might translate it instead as um, your redemption or even the redemption of your lives so that we're not separating the soul from the body, but we are, we're thinking through, we're absorbing uh, this idea that, that God claims all of us, not just our bodies, not just our souls, but the whole of us. Um, and so that's why uh, perhaps your redemption um, or the rescue of your lives is a better way of understanding that part of 1 Peter. The final thing uh, that we want to talk about in this uh, section of 1 Peter is, is verses 12, 10 through 12. And remember, verses 3 through 6, or 3 through, 3 through 5, rather, are all about the future, right? Looking forward. And uh, verses 6 through 9 are all about the present, right? And then verses 10 through 12 are all about looking backwards. There are these earlier confirmations, this earlier experience of, uh, or discussion of salvation. And so the emphasis uh, is really on the past. And I, I think I want to start, I want to lead with the big point here. And the big point is this, salvation is in the hands of God. Salvation wasn't just a backup plan. So what God has done through Jesus' death and resurrection 
wasn't a last-ditch effort. It wasn't a Hail Mary. But what First Peter argues, along with most of the New Testament writers, is that this was always the design. This was always what God was planning. This is no backup plan. This is no last-ditch effort. But this is part and parcel for who God is and who God's character is. And so what this affirms is that there is a continuity in God's purposes. Again, we don't want to say that God gave up on one way and only reluctantly gave up or adopted this new way with Jesus. Instead, we want to say that both Jesus and the prophets and the priests and all of the Old Testament, they're all part of God's singular unitary purposes. Um, Not only do we want to say that there's a continuity in God's purposes that we see in verses 10 through 12, we also want to say, hey, there's a unity in God's revelation. So that when the author of 1 Peter is talking about the prophets of old, the Old Testament prophets, searching for Christ and trying to understand Christ, and that they weren't serving themselves but were serving future generations, what the author of 1 Peter, I think, is really upholding is it's a singular revelation. It's not two revelations or three revelations. It's a singular um, God, that God's character is uh, is continuous and is, is, is faithful to God's purposes. Again, when we see this idea of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, searching and, 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 and trying to figure out what the, the Spirit of Christ was doing, um, this is similar to other New Testament writings that say, you know, what we believe about what happened through Jesus' death and resurrection isn't new. It's not novel, but it's, it might have been hidden in the prophets, and now it's been revealed. Remember one of our favorite Easter texts, the, the, the end of the, the book of Luke, when Jesus, um, after he reveals himself again to his disciples at a, at a table after breaking bread with them, uh, the author of Luke says that, that Jesus opened their brains, opened their minds, so that they could understand how all of the Old Testament, how the law and the prophets all pointed to Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. Um, and so I think that that's some of what we see in 1 Peter verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. So I've, I've covered probably a good bit of ground in this part two of my lecture for week one. And I want to pause, or conclude rather, with just three questions. Um, I'll, I'll say the question and then I might add a little texture to the question, but I would invite you to, to pray about these questions, to journal about these questions, to find a church member to discuss these questions with, um, because I think that they are uh, they're good questions that engage the text of, of Scripture, but also engage our lives. And so the first question is, how new is our identity as Christians? What is it that makes it new? And, and what is old about it, or out of style, or traditional, or handed down, right? What is that new birth that Jesus is calling us to? Um, what aspects of that have we maybe forgotten, or let go of, and maybe need to reclaim? A second question is, um, where do we trust, not in a living hope, but in a dead hope? Or, Where do we put our faith in a perishable inheritance rather than an imperishable inheritance? Or when, where do we 
um, put our hope in an unreliable form of salvation rather than the secure and valuable salvation that Jesus offers us. The third question I think is probably the hardest question to consider, and that is, uh, how do we wait well? There's this urgency and expectancy in 1 Peter, and yet we have to admit that 2,000 years later, Jesus has still not come back as far as we can tell. And so how do we wait well? How do we maintain a sense of that urgency and that, and that expectancy that, that Jesus is coming, that we are nearer to our salvation than the day we first believed? And yet we also live the life in front of us. We, we take our kids to school or we, we walk our dogs or we worship together with our church or we sit at the bedside with somebody who's sick or dying. How do we, how do we manage the, the waiting with the living? think that that's a really important question for us as we wrestle with 1 Peter. Thank you so much uh, for watching these video lectures. Um, I'm looking forward to getting to know you over the coming weeks, um, and I hope that these, these lectures and this engagement with 1 Peter is something that blesses you and blesses your soul and equips you to be a disciple in this world that God so desperately loves um, and uh, that you will feel encouraged and equipped for your life ahead. Thank you so much for your time.